Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. The following story that is about to unfold is the result of research undertaken by Kristen Wellborne and Taylor Harwood, master's students at King's College London studying modern history and world history. In order to tell this story, Kristen and Taylor undertook an internship at the Library of the Linnean Society and catalogued Lady Pleasance's correspondence. In order to tell this story, Kristen sifted through over 350 letters from more than 100 different correspondents received by Lady Pleasant Smith. Taylor, on the other hand, had access to 200 letters written by the Reverend Charles Lessingham Smith to Pleasance. Without access to any letters that Pleasance wrote herself, these letters helped give her a voice. His searching eye by science led, her ample volume nature spread to his capacious view. The humblest herb that springs from the earth, the tree sublime of mountain birth, their worth, their use he knew. The valued gifts his mind enjoyed, the noblest purposes employed, bespoke a soul refined. And whilst in learning's path he trod, their end was glory to his God and service to mankind. May these reflections balm impart to soothe the widowed mourner's heart, though deep that heart must feel the force of death's too fatal stroke, by which the tenderest bonds are broke, till heaven the wound shall heal. Lady Pleasant Smith outlived her husband, James Edward Smith, founder of the Linnaean Society of London, by nearly five decades. As she was not a fellow of the society, nor a botanist, it would be natural to think that, with the passing of her husband in 1828, that her connection to the Linnaean Society would have ended. But the high volume of letters that she received indicates the complete opposite. Up into the 1860s, Pleasance remained friends with the chairman of the Society, and donated books, specimens, and even some of James Edward Smith's letters to the Society. Being the wife of James Edward Smith afforded Pleasance the opportunity to broaden her horizons intellectually and break the mold of the commonly portrayed narrative of a domestic Victorian lady. Writing letters was a vital part of everyday life in Victorian times. It was the best way to pass on important news and conversation. A letter could be anything from a few lines to 35 pages. The postal service in those days was fast. Letters were being collected from the post box up to four times a day. One letter received by Pleasance from her niece traveled from Weybridge, southwest of London, to Lowestoft, about 180 miles in a single day. We know this from the date stamps placed on the envelopes. Victorians wrote letters at about the same rate we email each other. When they were in mourning, they sent letters on black-edged paper to symbolize their grief. The recipient would know before opening the letter that someone had died. It wasn't just letters they were sending either. They sent each other verses of poetry, photographs, article clippings, and dried flowers. Pleasance shared recipes and sent gifts of herring, called bloaters, from her home by the sea. She also sent geese, pheasants, dried fruits, and books to read. Dear Lady Smith, I am not... I am not a little delighted to find that my humble attempts on your ladyship's behalf have given so much pleasure. It is I, however, who am bound to thank you, and not you, me, 
for unless your ladyship had been amused to inspire me, I question whether I should ever have written anything after the village church, which seemed a fitting close to my desultory labours. Within the last two days, I have made another venture, but only on being asked to do so. I am charmed by your ladyship's appreciation of Robert Burns and with your masterly defence of his religious opinions. It was pleasant to hear that you had been cheered with the presence of so many loving relations and that the gout had not interfered with your enjoyment. May it long be powerless as now to affect either your heart or your head. Over the course of nine years, Pleasance received over 200 letters from the Reverend Charles Lessingham Smith. 33 years her junior, Reverend Smith was a mathematician and amateur poet, educated at Christ's Church, Cambridge. He served as rector of Little Canfield in Essex and never married. Their friendship was initially founded on their shared love of Scotland and Scottish poetry. Pleasance reached out to him through a mutual acquaintance after reading his book, Excursions Through the Highlands and Isles of Scotland. Reverend Smith considered her friendship as one of the greatest comforts of his life. He thought of her as an intellectual equal, unlike his neighbors, who he gave Pleasance a frank depiction of. He wryly assured her that his curate, a member of the clergy, wasn't fit to educate a chicken and asked for her candid and confidential opinions. Both of them had health issues. The reverend was very sickly and sometimes confined to bed. Pleasance dealt with gout and failing eyesight that left her with occasional hallucinations. When one went too long without writing, the other would worry that their health had failed them. He told Pleasance, What should I do without you? Your intellectual and affectionate letters have been the main solace of my long seclusion and I know not how to thank you for them as I ought. Pleasance corresponded with equal numbers of men and women. Aside from her niece, Lucy Martineau, the three people that she spoke with the most were the Reverend Smith, who we have just met, Rector William Fitt Drake, and physician Francis Boot. The people that she wrote to were all of the upper echelons of society. The historical name-dropping among Pleasance's contacts was rife. James Clark, Queen Victoria's physician, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Charles Dickens, royalty like Prince Frederick of Prussia, Queen Adelaide, the wife of William IV, Prince Leopold, and Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria and Prince Leopold sent Pleasant's letters in honor of her 100th birthday. The Queen also sent a copy of Our Life in the Highlands with an inscription calling Pleasant's her friend. Notable scientists of the day, like John Herschel, Henry Roscoe, and Charles Darwin's names were also mentioned on multiple occasions. Most of Pleasance's correspondents seemed to like and respect him and his work. One correspondent, Catherine Lyle, told her about visiting the Darwins. I have been paying a visit to Mr. and Mrs. Charles Darwin, who we have known for many years. He never has strong health and lives very retired, but nevertheless he achieves so much work and is such a charming person. The Reverend was less charmed by Darwin, whom he repeatedly snubbed for not taking honours when they were both at Cambridge. He was mainly concerned with the reaction to Darwin's work. What I do dread 
is the effect of the Darwinian speculations on the faith of young men of this age. There is quite a sufficient tendency to rationalistic views, which reject the scriptures altogether as myths, before my fellow collegian Darwin had written a line. But now I am certainly alarmed to find how widely absolute infidelity, justifying itself chiefly by his wild speculations, is spreading among the youths of the universities. I don't think he himself intended or knows this, and I can easily believe that he is a good religious man himself, for he was a very lovable person at college. But I confess that I dislike even truth itself when so stated as to lead others into error. Pleasance wasn't a scientist, but she did have a genuine appreciation of an interest in scientific developments. Many of her correspondents were either scientists or shared her fascination with what they called the scientific grandeur of the day. One innovation that intrigued Pleasance was the prospect of flying a hot air balloon into the Arctic Circle. She spoke a great deal about the logistics of what it would take to achieve such a feat. Much like today, they had a love-hate relationship with technology. And also just like today, one of these issues was how technology made people communicate less elegantly. The Reverend commented to Pleasance that although letters from his favorite correspondents gave him hope in... The epistolatory character of the age we live in. Meaning that Pleasance met the length, quality, and style of letter writing that was expected in Victorian times. And yet... In these days of penny stamps, postcards, and telegrams, people seem to have no brains for writing anything but matters of business. In another respect, too, the telegraph may be regarded as a questionable boon. For my friend had just had a telegraph from the Punjab to say that his younger son, a captain in the Royal Artillery, died suddenly on the 24th. By this sad news, the whole family are kept in miserable suspense for four or five weeks, not knowing anything of the cause of death. Pleasance also received a letter from another correspondence talking about the inability of the youth to write a good letter. Pleasance would discuss topics from science to natural disasters. In the second half of the 19th century, Mount Vesuvius erupted multiple times, and Pleasance's niece, Lucy Martineau, wrote to her several times to discuss it. Though one is glad to know the eruption is over, many poor people have lost friends and life and all they possessed. Pleasance also discussed topics like war and politics as well. In 1857, a number of Pleasance's correspondents expressed concerns over the rebellion going on in India. Even earlier than that, they spoke of the horrors of the Crimean War, some calling it a nightmare war. William Fitt Drake told Pleasance in 1854, this intense anxiety among our nearest neighbors here about the Crimean conflict is indescribable. They also showed concern over the American Civil War as well as the Franco-Prussian War, on which one correspondent, Catherine Lyle, shared her feelings with Pleasance. This war is a sad weight on all our hearts. Each day Each we day look for any signs of the end, but as yet are disappointed. May this great battle with the French general, Chancy, be the last. I hear he is a good officer, 
but his troops were for the most part composed of youths beginning at 16. I think it very wrong of the French military leader and head of state, Trochu, to hold out, and not brave to cause such a sacrifice of life. The cost is terrible on both sides. I'm going to have my little doctor to drive with me tomorrow. He is the most intellectual being in my neighbourhood, for my brother clergy, I regret to say, are all rather below the average, and Lord Rothwin is very seldom here. He, though not very profound, is always lively and has seen a great deal of the world, so that he is a very pleasant companion at the dinner table. After dinner parties at the Rosslands, the Reverend Smith would often share news, gossip, with Pleasance. Lord Rosslyn is a most agreeable companion at the dinner table, full of vivacity and ready with his anecdotes. But I suspect he is rather the sport child of the world and does not bear contradiction with any extraordinary meekness. I have heard him say very sharp things to his lady, though she is the gentlest of human beings, and his devoted slave. He is, however, exceptionally attached to her, and even proud of her, though he sometimes comments that her praise is too indiscriminate to be valuable. I believe the love expressed in his poems to be the sincere feeling of his heart and I always regard any human being who can love warmly as having a large portion of the uneffaced image of him who is love. The Earl and Countess of Rosslyn owned Rosslyn Chapel, which Queen Victoria visited on her first trip to Scotland. Romantic poets admired by Pleasance, like Wordsworth and Sir Walter Scott, wrote about the chapel, and today it's most known for being at the end of the Da Vinci Code. Lord Rosslyn was a Scottish Conservative Member of Parliament, and their social circle included Prime Ministers Disraeli and Gladstone, and Queen Victoria and her children. Lord Rosslyn wrote a great deal of poetry, including sonnets in honor of Pleasance's birthday, which he sent to her through the Reverend. Lord Rosslyn sent his poems to his friends and the Queen, but his harshest critic was none other than his neighbor, the Reverend. There were times when Lord Rosslyn wouldn't speak to the Reverend for months, after receiving feedback on a poem. After one of these times, Lady Rosslyn wrote, I thought your criticisms of Lord Rosslyn's poetry too minute and unfair. And once, Lord Rosslyn's wrath was such that He had not even allowed Lady R to write to me for months. But eventually, Lord Rosslyn would thaw and invite the Reverend to dinner again, forgetting his offence. Lord Rosslyn wasn't the only poet the Reverend had suggestions for. Pleasance once sent him verse she'd written after the death of her mother, and he sent her back glowing praise and one tiny improvement. The Reverend and Pleasance would share and discuss poetry, both old and new. He valued Pleasance's highly cultivated mind. Many of Pleasance's contacts would share their verses and poems with her to read and to give feedback on. Even the Reverend sent his own poetry to her. He published several volumes and once sent her 31 copies of his latest book, which she forwarded on to her nieces. The Reverend dedicated two volumes to Pleasance. In his translation of an Italian poet, his inscription went, To Lady Smith of Lowestoft, as a token of admiration for her literary accomplishments, 
of veneration for her years now exceeding 101 and of gratitude for her delightful correspondence still continued with unabated genius. This work is inscribed by her ladyship's constant and affectionate friend. One topic of discussion between the Reverend and Pleasance was James Edward Smith's nonconformist religion, which had kept him from being a professor at Cambridge. As an Anglican rector, the Reverend disapproved of Smith's religious views, but Pleasance always defended her husband. Other than that, she and the Reverend generally agreed on religion and shared quotes from the latest religious works they'd read. Pleasance was well known to be an admirer of Dean Stanley, a very prominent churchman and academic of the time, and would discuss his sermons and writings with many of her correspondents. She was very supportive of Dean Stanley, donating two pounds to his organization, the Palestine Exploration Fund, an equivalent of around 161 pounds in today's currency. In 1863, she even got in contact with Stanley himself and sent him a prayer. The Reverend and Pleasance discussed religious works, like Stanley's sermons, which often merged into debates about societal values, current events, and science. The Reverend assured Pleasance, Well, dear friend, I know not whither science may lead us, but this I feel sure of, that if it diverges from religion, it is no longer science at all. There is something in God's word so demonstrating and so exquisitely adapted to the wants of the soul that I feel sure it will majestically survive all the theories of philosophers and all the ages of the world. Both the Reverend and Pleasance wrote to one another at the end of their lives. The Reverend lived only a year after Pleasance died. Through various ailments and illnesses, they considered their own mortality and drew on their Christian faith for reassurance. Because she was a centenarian, the Reverend saw Pleasance as a source of wisdom, as one who had come to terms with aging and death. They both knew death could come for them at any moment, and it shaped how they saw the world. He told Pleasance, Even now I feel this clay tenement of mine becoming more and more crazy every day. And yet, I do not find my heart either aged or altered, for there is still in it ample room for thought of you. According to the Reverend's diary, which is now at Cambridge with his library, Pleasance wrote, There is something calm and soothing to me in the thought of death, and the only time that I feel repugnance to it is in a fine day, in solitude, in a beautiful country, when all nature seems rejoicing in the light of life. Pleasance's friends firmly believed that she would go to heaven. In a letter sent while severely ill, one correspondent wrote to Pleasant saying, I hope and pray, dear friend, I shall one day meet you in another building, not made with man's hands, eternal in the heavens, where all our trials and sorrows will forever cease, and all is peace and joy. Oh, may we both die the death of the righteous, and finally may our souls be at rest with Christ Jesus, there to dwell in heaven, to hurt no more. The Reverend speculated that when she died, Pleasance would merit a mansion in heaven and hoped to join her there. For, he wrote, I believe that the soul will never lose its consciousness of the lovely things, intellectual or physical, 
which it has beheld here below. And hence it is that I am so very sure that I shall always remember you. The way they thought of friendship is almost what we would today call soulmates. And because they were friends for only a fraction of their lives, they vividly imagined their friendship continuing in the afterlife. Our intercourse has for some years been the highest solace of my life and has, without intermitting, gilded my declining days. Nor has it been unattended with delight to you, if I may believe your frequent assertions. May it, then, be renewed in a brighter world than this which we have so often admired together, and be continued to all eternity, if, through the mercy of our Saviour, admittance into the courts of heaven be not denied to me. Pleasant shared his vision of heaven. In one letter, the Reverend quoted her directly as having said, Our sympathies, our taste, our pursuits, and our hopes for hereafter are in harmony with each other. In one of several sonnets he wrote for Pleasance on her birthdays, the Reverend pictured their friendship continuing as she ascended to paradise in heaven. To my very dear friend, Lady Smith, on her completing her hundredth year, Methought, O friend revered, a noble muse than mine should now adorn thy natal day. But since thou deemst mine worthy, I refuse nor this, nor aught which grateful heart can pay. And if the strain be fainter than before, tis not that love is less, but age is more. And when those other angels from the skies descend with golden harp and silvery sound to waft thee upward to thy paradise, to God and Christ and ransomed souls around, even then forget not in that world of bliss the friend whom thou hast left bereaved in this. Pleasance kept Reverend Smith's letters separate from all her other correspondence, organised into little bundles, and tied with ribbons, just as they are today. The Reverend and Pleasance first met in person in the last decade of their lives, when he was 67 and she was 98. They visited every year after. I fear, my dear friend, I have run on too long for your patience, but I feel sure forgiveness and heartily wish for retaliation in kind. Perhaps we may converse together in heaven, and oh, how will that delight surpass all that we have enjoyed on earth.